0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on PA Books, the author of St. Catherine, Cordelia Frances Biddle.
0: Cordelia Francis Biddle, author of St. Catherine, The Life of Catherine Drexel. With a last name like Biddle, are you related to St. Catherine Drexel?
1: I am. Um, I am, Brian. Um, her first cousin, Emily uh, Drexel, married Edward Biddle, and thus me. Um, I, I grew up hearing stories about her, and it, it turned out that my grandfather was raised by Anthony Drexel when his mother Emily died. Catherine was also raised by Anthony Drexel when her mother died, although it was a generation earlier. Um, so the stories of their youths were very similar. So what, when, what I learned from my grandfather, who was Emily's son, was very similar to the way Catherine was raised. So. Um, Although when I grew up, I didn't know much about Catherine. I mean, as, a, as an adult, I knew about her as a child.
0: So you didn't know a lot about this story before you started to research it?
1: Well, we went to Rome for the canonization. And by then, she was obviously a, a revered woman and a holy woman. And, and, uh, but there's a kind of a disconnect with the family, I think, because look what she did with her life. Um, She was an enormous philanthropist, more than philanthropist. She gave herself as well as her great wealth to helping the poorest of the poor, to educating the poorest of the poor. And she said, these people, African-Americans, Native Americans, aren't being educated by the government. This has to change. There has to be parity. She was an early proponent for social justice. Um, But given her life, And given my wealthy Biddle and Drexel relatives' lives, um, that, I think, threw into kind of high relief. Um, Their own, they were philanthropists, yes, they were charitable, but they also had palatial houses and yachts and everything money could buy. So I think she was, not persona non grata, but I think she was, a thorn, perhaps, in their sides.
0: Did they donate much money to her? No. Her family members did not?
1: No, no, no. She used her own money for what she believed in. And it's not that they didn't believe in, in social justice and parity. It's simply that they had they had other charities that they believed in. Anthony Drexel created Drexel University. That was her uh, her uncle. And uh, so that you know, they would maybe give money to Drexel University or some other charity, but they she used her own wealth, and she, I think, she probably was happier doing so because she didn't have anybody saying, um, "I think you'd better be better off doing something else." She was a very independent woman.
0: Was Anthony Drexel the founder of the family fortune?
1: No, um, it was his father, Francis Martin Drexel. He was a uh, poor. A painter um, of portraits who um, emigrated from Austria. Poor
0: money or poorly skilled?
1: Ooh, <laughs> that's a tough question. His paintings are workmanlike. Um, I they're not brilliant. Uh, he wasn't Copley, um, but they're they're attractive. But he anyway he he emigrated from Austria. In, he was fleeing the Napoleonic Wars uh, because Napoleon, having conquered Europe, uh, decided that he would recruit all the, the the different countries that he had conquered. So he would recruit members of the army, and that meant that Drexel would have been fighting against his own countrymen. So he fled very dramatically. Um, he fled across the rhine in the middle of the night and then across lake constance and then took a boat the john of baltimore to the united states he intended only to stay eight years at the maximum he wanted to make a fortune that was his drive and um, he did make a fortune but not as a painter he uh... he first he settled in philadelphia Um, married and still was painting portraits and had a moderate success, not fabulous success. And uh, he then decided that he would go to South America, he was an adventurer, and paint the grandees of the newly emerging countries of South America. So he deserted his wife and son and daughter and went off to to do this, and he was gone for four years. Came back to his family, and had made some money, not a fortune, as I said. Um, And by then, then he stayed here, and then Anthony, his son, was born. His first son was Francis, named after him, who became the father of Catherine Drexel. And that was the time that uh, Andrew Jackson had fought against Nicholas Biddle, and destroyed the second bank of the United States. So there was no central banking system. And uh, Francis Martin Drexel took advantage of that and opened a bank, which is like me saying, oh, I think I'll change from being an author to being a Wall Street trader and make a fortune. Um, I could never do that. He did. And he made so much money that the, uh, the family was able to loan the, un- the government, the United States government, $60 million to help fund the Civil War, so, and $60 million in those days' money.
0: Did the government pay him back?
1: You know, I don't know that. I'm pretty sure they would have had to because he was an astute businessman. Um, I don't think it was a gift. But he was very much pro- Abolition. They were a family that, you know, that so Lincoln freed the slaves. That was it.
0: When did Catherine come along?
1: She came along in 1858. She was uh, the second of uh, two daughters born to Francis Drexel and Hannah uh, Langstroth. And um, Hannah died in childbirth just after. Um, And she was born in 1858, as I said. And at that point, she went to live with her uncle, Anthony, and Aunt Ellen.
0: But Catherine never knew that the woman who raised her was not her birth mother.
1: No, she didn't. It was a very weird thing. And when I discovered that during the research of my book, I couldn't understand how the family kept that a secret from her. I, I believe it probably was... Unintentional, and but then once the secret started, what what were they going to do with it? Say, you know, you're you're really mistaken. I, Emma Bouvier Drexel, am not your mother. You had a birth mother. So she didn't discover it until she was in her early teens, which was an awful time to to learn that hard truth. Her si- older sister knew, um, the family governess knew, but she was kept in the dark. And it was very odd.
0: Her, her stepmother, Emma Bouvier, was she of the Bouviers that yes. gave us Jacqueline Bouvier-Kennedy? Yes.
1: Jacqueline Bouvier-Kennedy yes. yes. um, Bouvier Onassis was descended from Emma's brother, John. I hope you've got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so
0: in, they were part of Philadelphia society, yes. post-Civil War society. Yes. What was that yes. like?
1: Well, it's an interesting time in Philadelphia because um, there was a great shift in what was considered society and what wasn't. Um, the Drexels were very wealthy, but they were bought, considered by the Biddles to be kind of nouveau riche. Um, and of course, the Civil War changed everything. They were There were suddenly multimillionaires like um, Elkins, who had been a poor man before. So, so society began to shift, and uh, Anthony Drexel really decided that his children should marry into the elite, thus the Biddles and the Cadwalladers and Fells and Van Rensselaers and so forth. Um, and they then became the, the new elite because, of course, they had money. And they married into families that were old families, but that didn't have that kind of cash.
0: Where did all the rich people live at
1: that time? They mostly lived around Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. Um, It was uh, unusual for them to live in West Philadelphia, which is where Anthony Drexel decided to live. Um, and and uh, where he founded Drexel University, but they had left what was then called, still called Society Hill, Society's Hill, named for William Penn's Society of Free Traders. They left that and, and moved moved west um, into the grander mansions around Rittenhouse Square.
0: What would it have been like for a young girl growing up with wealth in society, and well, what kind of rules and what kind of procedures, are, what were the well, inti- you well right. interestingly,
1: um, she had a lot of freedom, a lot more freedom than I think that uh, many young women of her age and generation did have. Um, they had summer homes, mostly on the New Jersey Shore. They did a lot of European travels. Um, she was homeschooled um, and had a governess. And, and, they, and they, there were rules, they, they had chaperones and so forth. But I, what I find interesting is that during the summers when she was visiting her relatives who were, had their houses on the New Jersey shore, not her, not her parents, but her cousins and uncles and aunts, um, the, ch- the chaperones were few and far between. And um, that I find interesting, a little curious, Um, There were lots of girls to be married off, so maybe it was better not to have too many chaperones keeping a tight uh, eye on what was going on. Um, But they lived a very lavish lifestyle. Now, Catherine's uh, stepmother, Emma, was a philanthropist in her own right. She, um, She opened her home one day a week. To the poor of Philadelphia and distributed food and clothing, um, rent money, money for coal. So Catherine early on understood the difference between great wealth and great poverty.
0: So she got to mingle with people who were not wealthy? She
1: was, she was, she was, she helped. And because she was very personable. And uh, I think her stepmother was less personable. She was a rather austere woman. She was very beautiful. She wore French clothes. Um, she uh, She was everybody's ideal of a lady of that period. But I think it was a bit more difficult for her to interact with the people who were coming to ask for food and clothing. Um, Catherine had no difficulty with that at all. And uh, so I think she was the liaison between her mother and, uh, and the folks who needed help. Did she keep a diary, Catherine? She kept a series of journals, and uh, they were wonderful to read. They still are wonderful to read. Um, she, was, she was impetuous. She was, uh, had an incredible sense of humor. Um, she did. We like all young girls. She pressed flowers into the journals, and um, she made fun of people, and she drew um, rather pointed caricatures of people. Um, and they and they reveal this other side of her because now she's a saint, and she wasn't. She wasn't a saint when she was a, a child, and she wasn't a saint as a as a girl. I mean, I I think sometimes. Um, who would she have been like? she was raised to be a bauble, um, although the family had had this um, con- contribution to the funding of the Civil war, she was still um, i don 't like to use the term just a girl, but really at that time that 's what she was raised to be just you know she would supposedly be somebody 's wife, and, uh, and that was all that was expected of her. So if you look at the modern or contemporary world, would she have turned out like Paris Hilton? I don't know. Um, but it could have been that extreme.
0: You said she had her debut at age 21. For someone in society <laughs> in Philadelphia at that time, what would a debut have been like?
1: Was, it was not <clears throat> what it is now or what it was 20 years ago, um, it was a private affair, really just for family and friends. It was to say to the, to the world at large, um, our daughter is now ready to be married. And here she is. We're presenting her to, to, to you and, and all of your relatives who are, have young, eligible men.
0: Did she have gentleman callers?
1: She did. She did. She even had a, a marriage proposal. And interestingly enough, it came um, it came just after Emma's death. So um, I think
0: that's her stepmom. That's
1: her stepmom, yeah. And I think um, she never told the only person she told about it, she told her father um, just to see what he would say, and he said, "Whatever you want to do." Um, she didn't tell her sisters, which I find very interesting. Um, And I also find it interesting that they didn't guess because this young man had to be coming to the house. He had to be seen walking about with her in Rittenhouse Square. Um, No one seemed to know. Uh, Her spiritual advisor who had been her parish priest knew because she wrote him and said, what should I do? Um, But the rest of it is kind of shrouded in secrecy.
0: When you were reading through her journals, how often did you come across a well, what do you know moment?
1: Oh, gosh, I think all the time. Um, especially because I didn't expect her to have this rollicking sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, when uh, the family went to Europe when she was 15, and at 15, she was expected to be, behave like a proper young lady. She did not. Um, she had, uh, conversations with a young man on the ship sailing to Europe that she probably wouldn't have had if she'd had a, a strong chaperone. Um, so th- we're, in our modern times, we would say, oh, that was kind of stilted conversation. But at the time, they were just sort of joking back and forth about who was reading what books and, and, uh. And she chided him for not liking certain books. And he said, oh, nobody in in England reads those anymore. And and now that conversation seems dry. But at the time, she wouldn't have been really permitted to have that kind of a conversation. But then when they got to Europe, um, they went up to um, the observatory in Switzerland to look over the glaciers. And here she was. She wrote about her clothes. She was very vain. Um, and wrote about all the clothes that she was wearing, and what the different styles were, and then grabbed icicles and started stuffing them into her mouth and eating them. So she was she was a cusp of, of womanhood, but still a kid, and that was lovely. And how many brothers and sisters did she have? She had two sisters. She had one sister who was the who was the daughter of Hannah, and then one sister, Louise, who was the daughter of Emma and Francis. And
0: just a little sidebar, when her grandmother died, you say in the book, she left money to her yeah. grandchildren by the first wife, but not by the second wife.
1: Yes, she did not like Emma. Emma was very disapproving of the family. She didn't believe they were staunch enough Catholics. She was very strict in her own observances, uh, religious observances. And so she would send her husband with the daughters to visit the in-laws, but she never went herself. So they created this huge rift. Um, They didn't like Emma. They thought she was snooty. Um, And so sadly, uh, the grandmother cut Louise out of her will. And that was very hard for the two other sisters to understand.
0: Was Catherine close to her sisters?
1: Yes, very, very. They considered themselves inseparable. They called themselves the three or we three. And uh, after they were left orphans as, as adults, um, they traveled to Europe and they were, they were inseparable.
0: Was she religious?
1: She had a religious side that she kept hidden. And that also is fascinating to me. She was raised to be religious. The family d- had services. Um, they uh, uh, Emma had create had a, uh, a chapel created in their home. Um, but but given the time, everyone really was religious. Um, it would, whether you were a Protestant or a Jew, Catholic. You, you worshipped in your place of worship. It was a given. Um, so I'm not sure that they were any more religious than anyone else in Philadelphia or really the country at that time, but they were. But she had, she had started to keep journals that she entitled, Strictly Private, The Holy Ghost Speaking to My Soul. And she started writing short stories that really have a strong religious bent. Um, but she never showed them to anyone, which is, it's, it's, it's wonderful, because you can see this duality of her nature, of who she thought she was being raised to be and who she ultimately became.
0: You teach creative writing yes. at Drexel? Yes, yes. Um, how was she as a writer?
1: Oh, she was wonderful. She, uh, she had a wonderful way with words. She never um, struggled for the exact word. Um, she had a, a very sly sense of humor. She wrote a, a really quite a, a wonderful observation about her own uh, growing up that she... It was supposed to be fiction, but it was about the peerless Catherine... Uh, who was the age of twelve, and uh, it's it's clearly autobiographical, Catherine, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she had that Catherine had two sisters, and um, it's it's a charming it's charming to read.
0: Are they published anywhere?
1: No, no. She wrote them. She wrote those stories for as I said she was homeschooled, so one of the exercises that she had was to to write. Both creatively and write <laughs> about science, and that was that was what she had to do. And and some of the science exercises she was to write to her sister, younger sister Louise, and explain the planets and explain how the world worked. Um, <clears throat> and she that was those were difficult for her. I don't think she was quite the scientist that she you, was supposed to be.
0: You you quote here uh, her. January 1st, 1874, uh, New Year's resolutions resolved to overcome impurity, pride, and vanity, to speak French, to to pay attention to prayers. And (laughs) one of them is to try to go to confession less as if you were going to an execution.
1: Yes, I know. There's her sense of humor. Mm -hmm. It's really wonderful. And it goes throughout. Um, I don't know whether she felt that she was going to an execution. Um, I certainly don't know what she had to be ashamed of. Um, French, French, though, was a real bête noire um, because um, her stepmother was French, spoke French, and uh, although born in this country, the Bouvier spoke French at home, and she had to write to her chère maman, her dear mother, in French, and that caused her no end of grief. She wasn't really a linguist. Um, so I, I, I love those, those new year's resolutions because she broke them, uh, a year later.
0: Well, when did she start showing signs that she wanted to be something other than a debutante?
1: I think she'd probably known it for a long time, but she really didn't understand how to tell her sisters and her family about her decision. And... It wasn't really until after her father died, um, her stepmother died, her father was filled with grief and he died two years later. And it wasn't until then that she, I think, understood that God wanted her to be something other than a bauble. Um, and it, I. I'm sure it was going on in her psyche because of those journals that she kept but she and her sisters had inherited when her father died a fortune. In today's money it would be over five hundred million dollars. So what were they going to do with it? And the two sisters really understood that their role excuse me, <coughs> was to marry and and model themselves as charitable women to their peers. She knew she needed to do something more than that. She needed to be God's hands and heart and feet at work in the world, but she didn't understand how she was going to do it. Um, so, so she started to have a regular correspondence um, with then Bishop James O'Connor who had started out as her parish priest, became her spiritual advisor. Um, She was closer to him, I think, than she was to her own father because she could share more with him about this push-pull. Who am I supposed to be? And by then her father was dead, so she really had no one to whom she could turn. She became very close to her uncle Anthony. And I think she uh, helped him to understand yeah. that Drexel University needed to be coeducational.
0: Do some of those letters back and forth with uh, Bishop O'Connor exist? They
1: all exist. Almost all of them exist. Um, well, who has them? They're at the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament in the archives. And they have, there's a wonderful archivist, Stephanie Morris. I'm going to give her a plug. Um, she helped me enormously with this book and helped me doing the end notes and Um, but you can go and visit the archives and see Catherine's correspondence. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing.
0: There is a a meeting she had with the Pope. Yes. And you say that there's a lot of myth that has come out of that. Yes. Can you say what, what happened in the meeting and what do people think happened? What really happened?
1: Well, it was, it was interesting because she uh, and her sisters had, as you say, they had a meeting with the Pope and she she said she at that point understood that there was a real need for teachers to go out to the west she hadn't started to think about the south yet but she knew that education was paramount if the native americans were going to compete in quote the white man's world and so she said please we need teachers missionaries to go out to the far west that the myth that has come out of this 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 conversation that she had is that he then turned to her and said why not yourself my child become a missionary that was reported in an early book on her life that was published in the 1950s um, as, as gospel truth I wasn't able to find it, but I was able to find that she became violently ill after this conversation. And so whether she heard him actually say the words or whether she believed that she heard him say those words, whatever happened, it changed her understanding of who she was supposed to be. And I think put the fear of God in her. Because that is a terrible choice. You know, here you're being told, or you think you're being told, that you should give up your entire life of ease and luxury and all these wonderful new clothes. And as I said, she was incredibly vain um, and go out and do this very, very hard work in these incredible. Primitive places in the United States, so that was that was the big shift over, and 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 yet she still held back.
0: You uh, have in here uh, some of her writings, and she writes a, a like a two columns: why to join the, yes, the yes. religious life and why not to, and under the reasons not to, uh, you write uh, she wrote. I hate community life. I should think it maddening to come in constant contact with many different old maidish dispositions.
1: Mm-hmm. There, see.
0: I fear that I should ne- uh, that I should murmur at the commands of my superior and return a proud spirit to her reproofs. Could get her in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And superiors are frequently selected on account of their holiness, not for ability. I should hate to owe submission to a woman whom I felt to be stupid and whose orders showed a thorough want of judgment.
1: <laughs> she was very impatient. <laughs> and you see that going through. And and I think that was very hard for her to, to make those, you know, column A, column B. Um, but she was a pragmatist. And she was the daughter and granddaughter. And niece of bankers. So she had grown up, said, you're going to weigh, if we're going to lend money to the United States government, how, how is that going to work? So that had been her background and so she, her reasons for entering religion were all very high-flown and wonderful, Um, and her reasons for not really show the human side of her, which is which I think is drives the story. She was a human being, and to see her impatience coming in, and to see her her understanding of what she was going to have to give up, um, that's very compelling to me in writing the story. And I, and as I was transcribing my notes and typing that into my computer, I I, I felt I was having a conversation with her, and you know the reasons, the reasons why I must obey God. And the reasons that are pulling me away from that and that are keeping me in this very, very comfortable world in which I've been raised, they're hard to read. And, and I, I, as a creative writing teacher, I, I brought that to my students and I said, look, you know, consider when your character is about to make a huge life choice, writing the pros and cons. I think it's interesting.
0: How do you teach creative writing?
1: Oh that's a great question. Um, How I teach it is uh, encourage my students to be as bold as they possibly can and um, never hold back anything. Uh, I start out with some acting exercises which I learned when I was an actress in New York. Uh, So I do sense memory, going back in time and putting yourself in a, in a place that was difficult for you, hospital room, something of, of some moment. And not talking about the event, but talking about or writing about what the room smelled like, what, what the sounds were, um, what the light was like. And all of a sudden you find, as the creative writing person, as the author, that you're being drawn into the emotional moment because you're putting yourself physically in the place. So, um, so that's what I do. I, um, they, I, have, I have small seminars. Um, they're very kind to me. They let me teach a maximum of 12 students.
0: So the, the <laughs> students have to be pretty good writers before they get to you?
1: Some of them are very gifted. Some of them are exploring it for the first time, which is wonderful, which is Drexel, really. Um, So I have biomedical engineers who really have never written creatively, but have always wanted to. Um, And some have enormous skills. And others, I say, you're going to learn. But really, the most important thing is that you explore. And I have them read short stories by masters every week um they have to write every week they have to read each other's work every week and so it becomes this seminar where they're critiquing and adding to each other's work and saying I love what you did last week can you do more give me more
0: what number book is this for you
1: oh I'm so bad at numbers um oh golly this is terrible um
0: I can give you a hint I can look it up in the front you
1: actually can't because my husband and I wrote 12 murder mysteries together
0: murder mysteries
1: we did we wrote murder mysteries under the pseudonym of nero blanc um, black and italian white and french and they have crossword puzzles in them so you so you do the crossword puzzles and solve the crime or sort of that's the idea
0: Uh, now the books that are here that say also by cordelia francis biddle without fear deceptions daughter the conjurer beneath the wind all fiction yes this is your first crack at nonfiction?
1: Yes, and, and I and I was trepidating about that. I really wanted to write Catherine's story, but I thought, well, this is not what I'm trained to do. However, my other books are all historical fiction, and I'm a research geek, and I will spend as much time as I possibly can in research facilities of which Philadelphia has a myriad. Um, so if I can be have my nose in an old newspaper, not my but the real newspaper, I'm a very happy person. And I realized that my uh, those three novels that you mentioned first are set in early Victorian Philadelphia. So this is almost a natural progression in terms of research, time, period, what was going on in the world, what was going on in Philadelphia. Um, and and I, as a as an author, feel that I need to expose social injustice. So um, those those novels really expose the huge chasm between wealth and poverty, and that's what I was all about in writing those novels. So so in fact, this was a natural progression. And and as a an creative writing person. I think I had an easier time entering into Catherine's psyche than someone who simply went at it saying, here are the facts, here are the figures. Let me put them together as if I'm putting together a jigsaw puzzle.
0: You like the research. How long did it take you from the time you decided, okay, I'm going to write the the book till when you were done? Uh,
1: Four solid years and probably another year of doing research and sort of, nibbling around the edges and saying, can I do this? Um, I, I, I considered myself a good enough writer, but not a good enough person in the beginning to write her story. I thought, shouldn't I be more holy if I'm going to enter into this woman's psyche? And then as I began doing my research, historical research, and then started to do research on her and read her letters and journals as a child I thought no I think perhaps being a being a regular person allows me an entree into her psyche that perhaps if if I were a more I'm well I am a religious person but if I had been say one of the sisters who had been in her order I wouldn't have picked up the sort of playfulness, maybe.
0: What's the difference between just being a good person who does charitable works and somebody who's holy?
1: Well, that's a good question um, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who do wonderful charitable works and are holy people because they are kind and good and and understand that they're doing God's work in the world. But she gave her whole self. She just gave, gave up her life as she saw it and as she was raised um, to devote her life to other people. So she emptied herself out and became God's hands and heart. She was really a disciple of Jesus.
0: You say when she was writing back and forth to Bishop O'Connor uh, about oh, should I enter the the order or not, um, he at one point said, no, I don't think you should.
1: Absolutely he said that. He, he felt that she would be better um, or Philadelphia and maybe the United States would be better served by having this very strong example of what a charitable act looks like. Um, and that she could serve her contemporaries and peers by saying, this this work needs to be done. I'm writing a check. I'd like you to write a check as well, um, which is the model that we now use. If you're a trustee of an organization, you say, I'm writing this check. I hope that you will match that. Um, she said, no, I need to, I need to get my hands dirty. I need to do this work. I need to touch people. I need to be with them. Uh, and then he said, "No, I don't think you're physically strong enough. You're not robust enough as a person. It's very demanding work, and it ultimately was. It it wore her out." How big was she? She was five one, maybe five two, um, but she was she was petite in many ways, um, but very mighty as a as a personality. In fact, there's a story of a man who met her. And had heard all sorts of uh, wonderful stories about her. They weren't rumors, but real true tales. And so he was expecting someone of great stature. And he looked at her and said, oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> and her answer was, most people are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when she decided to enter the convent, did she know she wanted to start an order?
1: Yes. She did.
0: And she how did. do you go about, who says, okay, you can start the order?
1: Uh, you have to have a lot of money, I think. And then she said, I'm doing this. Um, it was, by then, it was a given that she was going to have her own way um, and that she was not going to simply give up her money to the church and let them do with it what they wanted. And she said, no, I'm going to start an order, and the specific work is to educate African Americans and Native Americans. That's, that's all I'm doing.
0: How did her training go? How did she take to the discipline? And she, she started wearing a habit?
1: Yes, she started wearing a habit immediately. I think she she was in heaven, really. Um, it was having made that tough decision. Um, once she entered, she had no regrets. she never looked back. She was a very happy person. Um, you can see that in her pictures. She's just beaming all the time, all the time. What
0: kind of training did she have to go through To get to the point that they said, okay, well, you you know enough now. You can go and start your order.
1: Well, she worked hard for a year, um, at and she was up at uh, a a convent in Pittsburgh um, because she didn't want to be in Philadelphia. That there would be too much media hype around that. Um, And but even still, there was. It's it's different from being becoming a religious and actually becoming the mother superior. And that was more difficult for her, I think, because it required different skill sets. She had to be the boss. And that's really not what she wanted to be. She wanted to be the teacher. But she wasn't a very good teacher, I must say. Um, she, was n- she, was not a, she was not a good disciplinarian.
0: Was there any resistance or or jealousy in the church? Or who is this woman coming in here uh, going to set up an order?
1: If there was, I didn't discover it. I think um, she had such great wealth, and she also was so determined. And when she finally took holy vows... I think even, I mean, everyone, O'Connor, everyone said, yes, this is who you are, this is who you must be. And so uh, my understanding is that every, every priest, every prelate that she met recognized that she had something beyond what they had expected. So she wasn't simply then a wealthy woman who had a whim. She had a drive, a mission, a purpose.
0: How did she recruit other sisters to the convent?
1: Uh, she and she started out simply saying, this is what we're doing, and found eager um, adherents because they understood that these were people who needed education. Um, what they were, though, they were mostly wealthy young women who came from... Backgrounds where they had servants in their houses, so they were not very well equipped to suddenly run a communion of rel- religious and um, community rather and so they had all sorts of disasters. They couldn't cook properly they couldn't they couldn't understand how to heat the coal. Um, they learned, but it's not how they had been raised. but they had this drive. To educate and to go out and to create social justice.
0: Where was the convent?
1: It was in Ben Salem. It still is.
0: It is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talked about uh, educate these people. Who were the people that she wanted to educate?
1: She went out first to educate the Native Americans and started with uh, Navajos. And she was not about changing their religion. Um, I think that's a misconception that some people think she was a missionary. She wasn't. She was an educator, so she was delighted when, whatever, if the children kept their native religion, that was fine. Um, but really, they had to have an education.
0: And this was the late eighteen hundreds. Yes. What what would the West have been like?
1: Oh, wild, <laughs> wild, still wild. Um, well, you know, you think about uh, this. It was still the genocide, um, and. Uh, the, the you know massacre at Pine Ridge it was just it was still happening in the late 18,
0: 1890s. You refer to President Ulysses Grant's peace program.
1: Yes, peace policy. Yes, um, which was supposed to be, uh, I guess on paper it looked good, but then you were going to go out and put all the Native Americans into reservations, which was robbing them of. Um, their good land and putting them into inhospitable land, except for the one mistake they made, which was to put them in a place where gold was discovered.
0: How did she set up a school then, and and did she do it all on her own money?
1: She did it on her own money. Um, She got some government funding eventually, um, but the schools were built with her money. Um, She got some government funding to educate each student but really it was her, her drive. She found an architect in Philadelphia, um, uh, Burns, who, who designed most of the schools and she set a, go, went out and, and had them built.
0: How'd she pick the places she wanted the schools to go?
1: I'm not sure, that's an interesting question. I think it was a matter of need, a matter of need, a matter of availability of land, what she could purchase, um, where there was the largest congregation of peoples um, so it was near a, a reservation. It was on a reservation. Um, so those were peoples who could, especially among the Navajo, who who had to go work in the work tending the sheep, um, go home to their hogans. Um, so she, she, it was really a matter of availability, I think.
0: Did she go herself to yes. pick out the spots?
1: Yes. Yes, she did, and she journeyed. Once the schools were established, she went back and forth, train to Chicago to oh it was endless and um, and she was a very impatient person so she you know missed connections or slow trains she was constantly writing, you know, very cranky about that, um, but she went back and forth across the country making sure that the schools were well staffed, uh, you know there was typhoid fever that went through one of the schools at one point that they had blankets that they had coal that they had all the that the windows had enough glazing in them
0: what age groups did she teach
1: um really who, whoever they could find um so the s- students came in they were six to 16 it was really a mad imab- that's that's good when she went west um uh it was really whoever wanted an education
0: were there success stories
1: Yes, in fact, there is a success story that continues. Um, St. Michael's Indian School; it is still called St. Michael's Indian School, and uh, they decided to keep that original name. And uh, it is the the graduates from that are everywhere, and uh, you can you can find it online, and you can go and visit them and see what these students are doing. But it was a School in really an inhospitable part of this country that she established and is still going strong.
0: She also set up schools for uh, teaching African Americans in the Deep South.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And fought the Ku Klux Klan, um, which I find extraordinary doing the research. um, The Klan uh, had its sort of... Well, the Klan grew out of um, a backlash to Reconstruction after the Civil War. And um, the Klan is still going strong. Um, They have a very uh, glitzy website. today you mean? mm Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time on the Klan website to see what they're up to. Um, I used some of their proud history as one of my citations. Um, They... She, anyway, to get back to Catherine, she started a school in Beaumont, East Texas, which was a Klan hotbed, and that was a day school, and they posted the school, and she, they posted it in the afternoon. She'd left on the morning train to go back to New Orleans, and they were, these big men in their hoods, were fearful of this little dynamo of a woman so they waited until after she had left to post the school and threatened to burn it down and I, it's very haunting to me to understand how those children being educated there and how their parents and teachers felt because they were in danger of their lives especially the children. There had been uh, just before that a white uh, judge who was tarred and feathered and left for dead? And so it was a time of lynching. This was a this was an awful time in the world.
0: You tell a story of a, a Ku Klux Klan nighttime parade near one of the convents that was um, broken up by a tornado.
1: Yes, yes, that was that was also in Beaumont, um, and and one of the sisters wrote back to Catherine saying. This is what's happened today, and it's terrible. And then this this, God descended or something, um, just bad weather, um, but uh, destroyed the clan meeting house. And so the sisters all took that as a, as a message from God that, that they were going to overcome.
0: Did she ever get angry letters or death threats or anything like that? Though? Not that I
1: was able to find, but she surely must have gotten them because she, she created, uh, the, uh, these schools were what they did not want at all, and um, she created Xavier, founded Xavier University in New Orleans, and that started as a day school. Um, she got letters from the neighbors. She had to use a straw purchaser to buy the land because no one wanted the, quote, nigger sisters um, educating the, quote, little niggers, so she got Um, letters from all the white women whose homes were nearby saying, how can you do this? You're destroying our homes. Surely you understand. And I took such pleasure in in putting that letter in its entirety in the book and writing all of those women's names.
0: The women who complained. Yeah. Did her personality change at all when she became a nun?
1: I think it did. I think I, I saw her becoming more and more determined and really understanding even as she understood in the beginning that this was her mission and ministry was to serve the forgotten peoples of this country as she met resistance you saw her becoming more and more determined nothing stood in her way nothing even her own health and she hid the fact that she had contracted typhoid fever from her sisters and she she was on a train going from new york city she'd started school in harlem to out west. And she thought, oh, it was indigestion, it was fatigue, it was something. And by the time she'd gotten there, she had full-blown um, typhoid fever and had to be brought back. It was um, it was touch and go.
0: Did she stay close with her sisters, her family sisters? She
1: did. She stayed very close with her two sisters. Um, not her cousins as much, as I said, but her two sisters were very supportive of her. And um, And although... I think, I mean, they did understand what she was doing, but she was by then so so very close to the sisters who were in her charge, not her um, biological sisters, but her mission sisters, that I think they kind of replaced family for her.
0: Was she a celebrity?
1: Yes, she was. Actually, she was. I think it was very difficult for anybody to get an interview with her because she was so humble. Um, even when Xavier University became the Xavier University that it is now, in 1937, she did not appear on the platform. Uh, she didn't make a speech. She remained hidden. You can only see a picture, so an image of her um, behind a window. Um, so it was very, I think she was very humble. In fact, there were times writing the book that I felt she was stopping me. I know that sounds very odd. Um, that you, how, can, how can a person who's no longer living stop the person who's writing the biography, but I felt that she didn't want it to be written. And so either I was not connecting with her or the research wasn't right, but there were days that I just, I thought, this isn't writer's block, this is something else. So I had um, a conversation with her. Um, I went up to the mother house where her shrine is, and um, I said, this is not about you, this is about your work, and we need to get the story out, because it will inspire people to do other works, whether it's through her or some other good works. Do you
0: get the impression she did not want celebrity?
1: Yes, she did not want so celebrity. So she didn't
0: try to use it to get not, her, not at all. her way?
1: Not not at all, no. She was very good. She had two brothers-in-law, um, who had abilities to work within the government and so forth. So she, she was able to use them. She was able to use connections, but she didn't throw her own weight around. Not that it was much, but um, she didn't, she didn't consider what you'd think of now a celebrity would be able to say, I, I want this done, make it happen. She didn't do it that way.
0: You said that at one point her health failed and she went uh, back to the convent and never left for many years.
1: For the rest of her life, in fact. Um, she, she had typhoid fever and that, uh, that really weakened her greatly. She, sur- she survived that, she got better, but she kept up this brutal pace and uh, she was always rushing from Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, west, south, going to all the schools in the south. And there were 70 schools eventually throughout the United States. And she was hurtling herself between schools to make certain everything was well and that the sisters there were supported and so forth. And she had, um, had a stroke and hid that and uh, forbade the doctor to tell the sisters that she'd had this stroke. Kept going. Um, there was a sister who was ill who had cancer and she wanted to bring her back to Chicago. She had another stroke on the way and by the time she got back to the mother house in Ben Salem she was a very 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 ill woman and um, and then had a series of strokes and really was incapacitated.
0: She lived to be 97?
1: Yes. Yes, so the Strokes started, she had 20 years of living in the mother house and being confined to quarters, really. Um, and it was hard for her because she had been such an active woman. And reading her, her, le- her letters and her musings and her books of contemplations, um, you can see, and meditations, how difficult it was! She remained impatient. She would write that she was impatient with her night nurse, and she asked for forgiveness. Uh, she, but it, she had wanted to be a contemplative in the beginning, and now she was forced to be one, and she, I don't think she liked it very much.
0: You said at the beginning of this uh, program that you went to her ordination in Rome.
1: It, her canonization.
0: Canonization. Uh, canonization. But, yeah. What
1: was that like? Oh gosh, it was extraordinary. Um, it was pouring, pouring rain, a deluge of rain. Um, we were sitting in water in St. Peter's Square that was probably a good three inches deep. It was like sitting with your feet in a, a, a stream. And um, the whole of St. Peter's was a sea of black umbrellas. And there were thousands and thousands of people there. But there was this incredible spirit of joy. Uh, There were other saints who were named that day. And people had come from across the globe to be at this very, very remarkable event. I had never attended anything like this. And uh, when her name was read off, this is going to sound as if it didn't happen, but it did. The skies miraculously cleared, cleared not just got less gray. Um, The sun came out. uh, There was a rainbow in the sky. All the wet pigeons flew up in the sky as if they'd been released. And everyone in St. Peter's simply gasped. It was this, look. And uh, I think everyone probably began to pray. And I said, I have to write this woman's story.
0: Well, we have been talking about this woman's story. The woman is Catherine Drexel. The book is St. Catherine. We've been speaking with the author Cordelia Frances Biddle. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. It was wonderful talking with you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about P.A. books.